So continuing in the Psalms, there is a connection between last week's Psalm and this week's Psalm. So last week we were in Psalm 65. And um, the last words of Psalm 65, many commentators believe that it's positioned there because of the first words of Psalm 66. Last week in Psalm 65, we look at the God of salvation, the God of sovereignty and the God of supply. And in this last section, the God who supplies all creation in response, God's creation declares his glory. The very trees and flowers and meadows praise him and glorify him by being fruitful. The last line in Psalm 65 says this, they shout and sing together for joy. Creation does not need to be told to shout for joy. They do it automatically. But we need to be reminded, we need to be told, as we pick up here in 66, shout for joy to God all the earth. So there's a lot of similarities between these two psalms, so we won't dig into all the themes we looked at last week, but just kind of some some highlights. This is another praise psalm, another thanksgiving psalm for the God who delivers, for the God who does great things for his people, to the God who hears prayer, to the God who is powerful over all things. These are themes we're going to see in both of these. And the main theme, the God who is to be worshipped and praised and exalted in all nations. There is no one like our God. There is no other God whose mercy spans from sea to sea to the ends of the earth. And what a great encouragement to bring it all together. That The email update you're reading, I got it uh, one yesterday afternoon the finalized one this morning at like 6 a.m. I was like, I didn't know what I was going to do for an introduction, and usually the Lord will give something providentially. So this morning we receive that update, that we get to praise our God with tongues, tribes, and nations all over the earth, that we get to stand with our brothers and sisters in Africa who worship very differently, who live in very different, uh, very different circumstances, who are fe- uh, f- facing active persecution. But yet, in the name of Christ, we stand together, we sing to one God, we are united to one Lord and and one Savior, and we get to stand with them and support them for the cause of the gospel. That is the psalm we're going to get to this morning in fulfillment. The prayers of the psalmist hundreds of years before Christ, a couple thousand years before us, that the name of their God, Yahweh, the God of Israel, would go out to all the nations. We are seeing it. We are seeing him redeeming people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. So if you would, we're going to pick up in Psalm 66. Open your Bibles, please. Psalm 66, to the choir master, a song, a psalm. Shout for joy to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of His name. Give to Him glorious praise. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. All the earth worships you and sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name. Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in His deeds toward the children of men. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. There did we rejoice in him who rules by his might forever, whose eyes keep watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. Bless our God, O peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard. Who has kept our soul among the living and not let our feet slip? For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. 
You brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water. Yet you have brought us out to a place of abundance. I will come to your house with burnt offerings. I will perform my vows to you, that which my lips uttered and my mouth promised when I was in trouble. I will offer to you burnt offerings of fattened animals. When the smoke of the sacrifice of rams, I will make an offering of bulls and goats. Come and hear all you who fear God, and I will tell you what he has done for my soul. I cried to him with my mouth, and and high praise was on my tongue. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would have not listened. But truly God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God, because he has not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love from me. Let's pray. Blessed be God, because he has not rejected our prayers. He has not removed his steadfast love from his people. He is a faithful God. He is worthy of honor and glory and praise. His deeds are awesome and should be proclaimed among the nations. Come and see what our God has done. Taste and see that our God is good. Hear of his wondrous deeds that he has done for his people and he continues to do in his people. You are our God. Lord, I pray that these words would be true from my lips and from our lips, that our hearts would be devoted unto you that our words and our actions and our thoughts would be a sweet-smelling aroma before you, that our lives would be marked with praise and thanksgiving to our God, that you would be high and lifted up, exalted in all things, that we would not cherish our sin, but would be broken before you, humbled because of what you have done for us, that you you would send your Son for us, that we no longer have to give sacrifices of bulls and goats because the final sacrifice was given on our behalf by our high, high priest. You reconciled us to yourself so that we may praise you rightly, so that we may rightly be called your children. And we praise you that you are continuing to bring more lost sheep into the fold as your gospel goes out and as your church expands on this earth, as we patiently await the day when we will be united with you as one, all saints throughout history, in the new Jerusalem, new heavens and new earth, praising our God who took on flesh and walked among us and becomes our temple. And we will stand in your glory forever. Lord, help us to proclaim your glory until that day comes. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The first thing I want to talk about is glory. Because glory is the underlying theme of this psalm. Shout for joy to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Give him glorious praise. This psalm is essentially see God's glory, hear God's glory, tell of God's glory. Everything he does is for his glory. And in response, everything we do should be for his glory. God's highest concern for himself should be our highest concern for him and for our lives. I think the Westminster Shorter Catechism is right when they ask, what is the chief end of man? We are to glorify God and enjoy him forever. This is our praise. This is our purpose here on earth to glorify our God. And in it, he blesses us abundantly. In it, he provides for us. 
in it. His mighty deeds are shown in us and among us, all for our good and for his glory. This is a psalm that declares the good works of God. We see in verse 3, they're declared directly to God. How awesome are your deeds? They are declared in the congregation, verse 5. Come and see what God has done. They're even declared in the trials and afflictions of his people, verses 8 through 12. And they're declared as personal witnesses, verse 16. Come and hear all you who fear God, and I will tell you what he has done for my soul. Now, if you've noticed by your outline, there's a natural movement in this psalm. There's a movement from broad global praise to national praise in Israel, and actually we end in personal praise by the psalmist. And in each one of these, there is praise, there is an act of worship before God, and then there is a recounting of what God has done. And this, this rhythm goes from this broad global scale down to what is required of the psalmist and the individual. And we're going to do the same thing. We're going to walk through the global praise of God and look at what is God, God has done among his people. And then also what is required of us in response. So let's pick up in verse 1. Shout for joy to God all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Give to him glorious praise. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. All the earth worships you and sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name. This, is, this direction in worship is so descriptive and so vivid. Look at the descriptive words here. Shout for joy. That is a command. Sing the glory of his name. Sing to him glorious praise. Say to God, how awesome, so great. All worship you. All sing praises. Worship to God is marked by us bowing down and bringing ourselves low that he may be exalted and he may be lifted up. The word worship means to be brought low, to fall down, to be prostrate before God so that he may be lifted up. We talked a lot about worship last week, so we won't spend a whole lot of time here, but I want to touch on a couple things. All throughout this section of the Psalms, singing praises, and especially through all the Psalms, is the driving factor in these Psalms. And what we see here that closes this first part is it is to the nations. Verse 1, shout for joy all the earth. And closes with all the earth. Verse 4, all the earth worships you. This is broad global praise. All nations. The God of Israel is too big for just Israel. He is the God of all the earth. He is the God for all nations. And even though Israel rejected this idea many times throughout their history and even unto today, the psalmist did not miss this. Their God is so great, so powerful, so awesome that his praise cannot even be contained by all the nations. And the praise should be sung to his name. Now if you have not noticed in these psalms, and many of you probably haven't, he is named God. His name, his, so God is his class name. That's what type of being he is. He is a divine being. But Yahweh, when you see the Lord all caps, that is his covenant name. That is his name that is specific to Israel. Yahweh, the Lord your God, the God who is attached to Israel. Now there's debate on why this is not in here, but that's not our purpose. Many of the Jews were scared to even mention or utter or even write the divine name for, for sake of being irreverent, for, for sake of using it in vain. So anytime we see 
the glory of His name. They sing praises to your name. They are speaking of the divine name, of Yahweh, of name that is attached to God. And it's not just a name like us. We don't think much about the meanings behind our name. But in those days, as you read through Scripture, through whether it's Jacob or Paul or, or, or Peter, names are specific. Names have a meaning. Names are there for a purpose. It tells you about the person. And the name of their God tells you about his character. This is the Lord God of Israel. Everything he has done up until this point, everything that the author is going to talk about here has been for the sake of the glory of his name, that the nations would fear, that the nations would, would cower before him, that the nations would praise him. And so when he says, glory to your name, it is not just using a name for the sake of a name. It is the name, the name that is above every name, the name that is worthy of all glory, honor, and praise. It is the name that encompasses the I am, the God who is all things, who was, who is, and who is to come, who never changes. Worship that God. That is the only God who can save. That is the only God who is worthy of praise. And that name should be lifted up. So this is a great praise section. But there's one little line that's interesting here. Second half of verse 3. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. There's a great contrast here. So great is your power that even your enemies, they, they have no choice. They come before you. God's people come boldly in praising him. But his enemies come cringing. They come cowering. We've talked about this before. Every day, or excuse me, one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. You will either kneel in confession and submission or you will kneel in judgment and be destroyed before him. So even among the praise, God is, God is glorified over all the nations who praise him. But even his enemies, he is glorified in them cringing and coming before him. So we see this praise to God in verses 1 through 4. And then we see what he's done here in this, this next section, 5 through 7. Come and see what God has done. His awesome, he is awesome in his deeds toward the children of man. This global praise is followed up by the global witness before the nation. He has many deeds, but this one is par excellence. He turned the sea into dry land. Now you should know this if you spend any time in Sunday school or you've opened your Bible a couple times. Hopefully you know the story of the Exodus. Hopefully you know where God parted the Red Sea and it came, became his dry land. Because if you've been in our Deuteronomy study for a while, you, you've seen how much that God points their eyes back to what he did in the Exodus. For the, for the Hebrews, for the, the Hebrews before they had written scriptures at this time, the Exodus was their systematic theology. The Exodus told them who their God was. The Exodus showed them how their God contrasted to the, the, the weak and um, incapable gods of Egypt. Each one of the plagues was a polemic or an argument against the, show, against the gods of Egypt, showing their God he was more powerful. It was a witness to Pharaoh and to all the powers of man that our God delivers. There is a message of atonement and redemption and deliverance from slavery. There is a message of provision within the wilderness. And this is brought up again and again and again. And there is a message of miraculous salvation when no other chance is possible in the parting of the Red Sea. This is the deed that the psalmist chooses to bring to our attention. I can tell you many, but this one stands above the rest. This one is a great uh, domino of, 
of amazing acts from the God of Israel. And it is a witness to the nations. So there's actually two events here. It's easy to kind of gloss over this. Verse 6, he turned the sea into dry land, that is the parting of the Red Sea so they go over, and they passed through the river on foot. Now is that referring to the same incident? He parted the Red Sea, but he also, in a lesser known passage, parted the Jordan River. And that passage helps us bring all this together. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Joshua chapter 4. Because as Joshua writes his account, as the Lord speaks to Joshua, he is saying exactly what the psalmist is saying and exactly what our purpose is this morning. So we're in uh, Joshua chapter 4, a few books to your left, if you're in the psalm, starting in verse 21. So when they crossed over, um, they, they set up stones of, of remembrance, and now there's an instruction given to the people. Verse 21. And when he said to the people of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know that Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up, uh, dried up for us until we passed over. What's the whole purpose of this? Why did God uh, part the Red Sea and part the Jordan? So that... All the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of God is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. What is the purpose of God's mighty deeds? That all the nations may know. And he is, the, the, the psalmist is drawing our attention to that. There did we rejoice in him. Where is there? The other side of the Jordan, where the people rejoiced and retold the good deeds of God. Who did they rejoice in? There we rejoice in him. Him, verse 7, who rules by his might forever. Him, our mighty eternal God, the same God we were commanded to remember and worship forever, we're still remembering, we're still worshiping. We are being faithful to what God commanded Joshua and Israel several hundred years before uh, coming into the land of Canaan. The God who rules by his might forever, whose eyes keep watch over the nations. He, will, he watches over the nations for their praise, for their protection, but also for their correction. His eyes keep watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. Be careful. This is a God who watches over all nations. His eye sees everything. Don't forget what happened to Egypt. Don't forget when you try to make yourself God like Pharaoh did and exalt yourself. Be careful. Do not exalt yourself. You will be corrected. So in this first section, we see this global witness of what God has done in Israel that was meant to be a witness to the nations. God delivered his people from their slavery for his glory. And the God who delivered his people then from physical slavery is still delivering his people now from spiritual slavery for his glory. When he delivered Israel, it was a witness to the nations. Our God saves from impossible situations. And when he delivers us now from our sins, we see the saints repent and turn to Christ. It is a deliverance for his glory as a witness to the nations every time a sinner repents. Every time someone comes to Christ and their eyes are open and they become a new creation, it is a witness to the nations. And we are seeing it in every corner of our globe. And I know the irony of saying corner of the globe. Uh, yes, Jonathan said earlier, Childers has, Steve Childers has been a great influence on me, and uh, he always signs his, his uh, emails 
for the nations. And um, just going through these psalms, it, it, it's really hit home. And I love to see his heart that he wasted no time from stepping down from teaching in seminary to going to the places that need the gospel the most. Let us also be a people who praise our God and have on our lips that what we do, we do for the nations. Let's pick up in verse 8. Now we've got the global praise comes down to national praise. In verse 8, bless God, O peoples. This is about Israel. How do we know it's about Israel? As we read through this, look at the repetition. He saved us. He is our God. This is possessive specific language. This is spoken to Israel to give a specific point here. So let's pick up in verse 8. Bless God, O peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard. This is not timid, lifeless praise. This is not mumbling under your breath just trying to get through the song. The Hebrews were expressive people. I love to hear you guys sing. I love that we can hear you over the speakers. That's by design. Our God is worthy of praise. Our praise is to be heard. I want our praise to be heard so loud that these people worshiping false gods across the street will hear it. That our neighbors that don't know you are sitting in their beds will hear our praises. That the glory of our God will go to the nations. That we, like Israel, would make our praise heard. Amen? Because he is the God, verse 9, who has kept our soul among the living and has not let our feet slip. The ground may be rocky in the journey. It may be slippery walking through the Jordan, but he is the solid ground on which they stand. And we stand with them and say, on Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. And in this treacherous journey and the difficulty that Israel was going through in the wilderness, God did not let their feet slip. Now some of them slipped. We've seen some of them have fallen into the earth. That's not true Israel. Not the ones who went after other gods. His people he preserves always. This here, he has kept our soul among the living. He preserves our life and he's not let our foot slip. So he preserves our life in general, but he also preserves our, our circumstances. He is with his people. Paul reminds us of this when he gets into the, um, the, the whole armor of God. The shoes that we are to put on our feet is the readiness that comes from the gospel. It is the gospel, the sure footing of our doctrine that keeps us on the solid ground and keeps us on the narrow path. And the readiness that he gave them through faith in the wilderness, through shadows, we have fully before us in the gospel that it is through his word that he keeps our feet from slipping. What God did for them in the wilderness, he continues to do for us. And his gospel is the promise of that. The God who delivers you from slavery is also the God who will continue you through the wilderness and into your final resting place. The message is the same, yet we see it so much more beautifully portrayed in the fullness of what Christ has done. He keeps our souls forever. He will never leave us, never forsake us. And while we may stumble, we will not fall. Now, it does, this does not mean that things are going to be easy. This does not mean that there will not be difficulties. Quite to the contrary, because look at verse 10. For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. This word for, for testing, trying, it's the same word for the smelting process or the refining process. We talked about this on Wednesday night at Bible study. We've talked about this so many times, but such a great illustration. The smelting process is you, is you take a, a, a raw ore, 
silver, gold, something valuable that has other impurities in it, has dirt, has lesser minerals, has dross, what they call it. And you turn up the heat, and as the heat rises, all the impurities are burned off for the purification of that metal so that what is valuable may be separated from what is invaluable. And so what is said here is that for you, O God, have tested us. You did this. All these things that we're going to look at to follow, you have tried us as silver is tried. You want us to be pure. You want us to be refined before you. This is exactly what James says about trials in his letter. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, he says this. Count it all joy, my brothers. The same people who praise God still praise him in affliction. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God tries his people. He turns up the heat so that they may be perfect, so that they may lack nothing, so that they may stand before him spotless and blameless. The fire hurts. It does. But it is for the refinement of his people. And there's a blessing in it. Look at verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. This is the gospel promise. God does refine. He does test. But he does preserve. Those who are his will be refined. They will be pure like a crown of gold. And that is a promise that you can take to the bank. So what was this testing and trying? The psalmist gets into it here. You brought us into the net. This word for net is is a hunter's snare. This is not a good thing. You don't ever want to be caught in a hunter's net. You don't ever want to be trapped. The same word is used in Ecclesiastes 9.12. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. This is not a good thing. Lord, you have tested us. Lord, You have brought us into the net. This is slavery imagery. You brought us into this snare, into this net. But what man means for evil, God determines for good. And so even in the snare, they're recognizing that their God is good. Also slavery terms. You laid a crushing burden on our back. The same same concept as affliction. You laid a crushing burden on our back. This is certainly slavery image. Let's take it a step further. You let men ride over our heads. This is not fun. You did this. You test us. You refine us. But the wisdom of the psalmist to know that this is refining. This is for the purification of your people. And then he takes it a step further. We went through fire and through water. This is to say we went through every extreme, fire and water. But this is also what happens in the smelting process. When you turn up the heat, when you add fire to silver or gold, it purifies it. And then after you bring it up to a certain temperature, you throw it in cold water once the dross has been separated. Once it cools down, you take it and put it under the fire again and turn the fire up even hotter so that the purification goes further and further until you get to 24 karat pure gold. This is what God does with his people. From the fire into the water. From the fire into the water. Each time, from degree of glory to glory, that they may be refined in their Lord. The psalmist realizes 
the amazing work that God does for his people. And look what he, look who he attributes it to. He's not saying, oh, the devil did this and God is up in heaven with his hands behind his back and helpless in all this. The same God, you kept our soul among the living. You also have tested us. You also have tried us. You brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our back. You let the man ride over our heads. But also, yet, very important here at the end of verse 12, yet you have brought us out to a place of abundance. This is beautiful. God is sovereign over all these things. The psalmist realized when we go through these things, we didn't do it apart from you. We did it because of you. And even though we didn't understand it and it hurt in the moment, it was for our abundance. You ever seen a forest after a forest fire? Now, forest fires look like massive destruction. The fire comes through and all of the weak trees and underbrush, they are destroyed. But the ash is great fertilizer. And so weeks and months after the forest fire, the forest, the forest is, is thicker, it is, it is healthier, and it's actually good for the longevity of the forest. But there must be pain for a time. Trials are not easy. They are not pleasurable, but they are for our good. And not just our good, but our abundance. That we might grow, that we might look closer to Christ. You and I, we have a lot of dross that needs to be burned off. We have a lot of impurities that cannot be burned off unless the heat is turned up. And we must go through that for our abundance. We spend a lot of time on this in Psalm 51, where David, because of his own sin, was afflicted by God. But David, with a contrite heart and broken spirit, pours out his heart before God, recognizing that his affliction... The, 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 the pain that he was feeling because of his own sin led him to the Lord, led him to praise the Lord. We spent a lot of time on these passages, but I just want to show you a few. Turn to Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is a beautiful declaration of the word of God and its work in his people. Just a couple of verses. Psalm 119, verse 67. Psalm 119, 67. How can the Israelites... Say, God, you gave us this, this burden, and yet for it's, it's for our abundance. The same way the psalmist can say this. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. God, you, you, you discipline me, just like kids. Before you spanked me, before I was afflicted, now I obey. Verse 71. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. We're stubborn. We need spankings. We do. Verse 75, I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. The message is the same throughout the Psalms. God afflicts his people for their good. This is why the message of the prosperity gospel falls flat because it has no answer for this. Because if you have a God who only wants good things for you, there is no refinement. There is no purification. There is no growth. It is a good thing. And I would even take it a step further. That if the Lord uses this to refine us, praise him for it. Can you thank God for affliction? Like the psalmist, can you thank God for afflicting me because it has taught me to obey you? Look what Peter says, 1 Peter 1, 6-7. We read this this morning, but I want to bring this back to your remembrance. In this you rejoice... 
Though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. We rejoice in our trials. Why? So that, same concept here, the same tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by the fire. At a certain temperature, gold will be destroyed. Gold will burn up. But it is not so with the people of God. Rejoice, because there is no fire possible that can burn up the people of God. The fire of God tests us that we may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Why is the refinement necessary? Why does the heat have to be turned up so that Christ may be exalted, so that we may praise him after we come through the trial, that we may rejoice? Because as Christ suffered, we suffered, so that we may share in his suffering, but we also share in his glory. So I'll give you a challenge. Try it. Spend some time today. Spend some time this week. Think of how many times your affliction drew you to the Lord. Think of how many times what felt like a, a crushing burden on your back caused you to cry out to God, strengthen your prayer life, drew you to his word, and ultimately led you to abundance on the other side. So now we move from the global praise, the national praise of Israel, and the lessons we learn from that into now it gets personal. We see the pronouns change. You pointing to God. Us, we pointing to Israel. I pointing to the psalmist. Verse 13. I will come into your house with burnt offerings. I will perform my vows to you, that which my lips uttered, and my mouth promised when I was in trouble. I will offer to you burnt offerings of fattened animals with the smoke of sacrifice of rams. I will make an offering of bulls and goats. From the national the specific. This is personal. Offerings of praise. This is the nature of vows. The people of God, this is a regular practice. They say, God, I will do this for you. God, I need deliverance. Please do this for me, and in response, I will do this. Or, because of what you have done, I will dedicate this part of my life, or this to you. There's a little indication of what's going on here. I will come into your house with burnt offerings that I promised when I was in trouble. There's a contractual exchange here. Now, a lot of people do this. And they'll say, God, if you get me out of this, you know, I really need to pay this bill. If you can give me some money, then I'll go to church. Or if you can re restore this relationship, then I'll start reading my Bible, or, or, or then I'll pray. How many people have you heard make that deal with God? How many of you have made that deal with God? How many people actually follow through with that? How many people actually mean that? How many people recognize that in the deliverance and the provision of God, it is to turn into a vow offering of praise? It's not a bad thing to say, God, if you deliver here, if you provide here, I will do this in, in return. If you do it. But the people have heard so many of them. Yeah, I'll go to church after this season. I'll do this after this with their fingers behind their back or you know, whatever uh, parallel you, you want to draw to that. But the people of God know that our God is faithful. And when I come before him in, in earnest and know that my God provides, I will respond in offering my praise to him. And he did. I will come into your house with burnt offerings. The significance of burnt offerings is that the burnt offering was completely consumed by the fire. That means every bit of it from, you know, head to tail, Every hair on the hide was dedicated to the Lord completely, like the psalmist. 
what I'm going to do is I'm going to dedicate everything to you. And not just the animal itself, but fattened animals. This is the good stuff. Plural. Fattened animals. Plural. Rams, bulls, goats. This is expensive. This is not, God, you do this for me, I'm going to give you the leftovers. God, I'm going to give you my first and my best. Nothing but the best for you. Fattened animals, and many of them. This is going to be so extravagant that it is going to send a witness in how much I am offering before you. It made me think about as I was preparing about the lavish offering that Christ offered for us. Because here the Hebrews have to continue slaughtering animals to reconcile themselves to God. And there was a message sent here. If someone gives you what is valuable, many bulls, many goats, and that's a big deal. Because you placed a high value on your vow to the Lord. What did our Father send of value for us? Not many bulls and goats, but his only son. There is no more greater than an offering sent from God, of God, for the people of God. This lavish offering of Christ. This is what the book of Hebrews says. Turn to Hebrews 13. If you have not studied the book of Hebrews, I encourage you to. Every step of the way, it shows you how the promises and institutions of Israel point to Christ. But look at chapter 13. Draws all these things together. Talking about the sacrifices of Israel. Talking about the sacrifice of Christ. And then what the sacrifices are of his people are in response. So Hebrews 13, picking up in verse 11. For... The bodies of those animals whose blood was brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So sin offerings done outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate. Jesus became a sin offering. Jesus offered himself for sin, could not have been offered in the temple. Sins remained outside of the gate. That's why he was crucified on a hill and not in the temple courts. What was his suffering? In order to sanctify the people through his own blood. The psalmist, back in 66, is hoping to sanctify himself through the blood of bulls and goats. And that was, there was a provision for that. But now, the sanctifying blood of the Savior shed once through his blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. If I have to bear suffering to grow in Christ because my Savior suffered for me, so be it, and I will praise God for it. Why? Because this is not my home. I'm not seeking comfort here. For here, we have no lasting city, but we seek a city that is to come. So what do we do while we're here in a city that is not our, our city? What do we do in the midst of suffering? What do we do in this Christian life? Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of the lips that acknowledge his name. Where do we start in Psalm 66? Praise your glorious name. The command is still the same for us. That is our sacrifice. That is our vow, offer, vow offering before God. We praise your glorious name ever on our lips. Do not do good. Excuse me. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. We no longer sacrifice the blood of bulls and goats, but we speak the name of our God and we do good because our God has saved us, our God has delivered us, and it is a witness to him. So now when we look at the vow offering of the psalmist, 
This is the praise portion. This is what I will do before God because of what God has done. Now let's look at what God has done in his life, picking up in 16. Come and hear all you who fear God, and I will tell you what he has done for my soul. It is natural for personal testimonies to come out of what God has done. This is the, the, the common flow of things. I praise God because of what he has done, and I will tell everybody. So verse 16 is kind of our theme or thesis verse for this passage. Come and hear, all you who fear God, and I will tell you what he has done for my soul. Come and hear. Gather around. I'm going to tell everybody, and I'm going to keep telling people because of what God has done for my soul. Not just what God did for my pocket, not because God made me a better person, but he saved my soul. Gather around. There is excitement in what God has done. Gather around all who fear God. People who don't fear God could care less. But people who fear God, you start to tell them what God has done. It's like music to the ears of the sheep. The sheep's ears start to prick up because they, they know the work of their master. They are, they are drawn in. This is why we do testimonies on Sunday morning. This is why we encourage one another to share our faith. This is why we tell people of what God has done because they're a lost sheep. And it is music to their ears, those who, who, who fear God, when they hear that there's a God who saves, there is a God who redeems, there's a God who draws near. And even though I may not know him now, when I hear those words, I want to know that God because the Spirit is working within them. This is the power of the personal testimony. My soul. What he has done for my soul. Here's what's going on in his soul. I cried out to him with my mouth. Crying out is usually not when things are going well. This is the affliction that was going on earlier. I cried out to him with my mouth, and high praise was on my tongue. At the same time, crying out with my mouth, praise on my tongue. You can do that. You can cry out to God, save me, for you are a good God. That is crying out and praise in the same breath. Same mouth that cries out, the same tongue sings praise. Can we do that? Do we do that? Say, God, deliver me. God, help me. God, provide for me. Because you are good, and you are worthy of all praise. Those two things go right along with each other. But there is a caveat here, and there's some clarification that needs to happen. Look at verse 18. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. So, I need to tell you what this means and what it doesn't mean. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart. So make sure we read these words carefully. So what is needed to approach God in prayer? To be perfect? Of course not. Does it mean that we have to confess of every sin that we've, we've ever done? Of course not. But there's a real question. How do you view your sin? Do you cherish it? Or is your heart broken and contrite like David's was? Or is it a heart that is holding on to pet sins? God, I want you to do this. But I really love this. I... And what you're saying is, I love this more than you. I'm cherishing something. God, why hasn't God answered my prayers? Because I give too much venting to my lust, to my pride, to my anger, to my jealousy. Let's also say what this is not. Just because God doesn't answer your prayers doesn't mean that you're holding on to a pet sin. God answers prayers in his time and his ways. But it's a fairly safe bet. Pretty safe. Very safe. 
that if you are holding on to sin, if you are cherishing your sin, if you love things of this world, if you love things other than Christ, and you go to him, and you wonder why your prayers are not answered, it's probably because you have an idol. This is exactly what Isaiah says in chapter 59. It'll be up on the screen. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that he cannot save, or his ear dull that he cannot hear. God can hear. God can save. God's not the problem. What's the problem? But your iniquities have made a separation between you and God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Think about this. If you are in an unrepentant sin and you love your sin, how can you expect a favorable response from the God who sent his son to die for sin? Christ took on flesh and walked among us so that we might be new creations, new creatures. So many people calling themselves Christians or even Christians are content as walking as old creatures and wonder why they struggle. Wonder why they're in immaturity. Wonder why there's no joy in their life. Wonder why their prayers are not answered. Because Christ came to die for sin. How could we cherish it? But there's something here with the psalmist, verse 19. But truly God has listened. Now he wouldn't have listened if he was in my sin. So what the psalmist is telling us is, I don't cherish my sin. My sin does not have a connection to me that is greater than my connection to the Lord. God has listened because I desire God's glory. Because even in my affliction, I praise him. I cherish God, not my sin. Because even in my affliction, even when I was in trouble, I never stopped praising God. I never stopped telling about his deeds. And God listened to my prayers. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. What about you? Are your prayers marked with praise or just feeling sorry for yourself? Are you expecting God to listen but holding on to a pet sin? Is there something else you love more than God and wonder why you feel like you have an empty prayer life? If we do not cherish our sin, we can have confidence that there is a gracious God who hears the prayers of his people for the sake of his glory and our abundance. Blessed be God, verse 20, because he has not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love from me. Recognizing God's love for him, his hesed, this covenant love, and nothing is possible without it. Blessed be God because he has not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love from me. I love that he gives credit where credit is due. It's not because I made an offering. It's not because I have everything together. It's because my God answers. My God has not removed his steadfast love from me. And he finished where he starts, glorifying God. God did not remove his steadfast love from Israel. He saved them out of Egypt. God does not remove his steadfast love when he tests and he tries. God does not remove his steadfast love when he answers the prayers of his people. For those who praise him and hate their sin, those he sets his love on, he never removes it. This God is worthy of praise. So in our conclusion going to do an act of corporately putting this into practice. So stand up. And uh, guys, you can come up. I want you to respond with me the way the psalmist does. And let our praises be heard.
Our God has done great things. Amen? Amen. Our God is worthy of our praise. Amen? Amen. All the earth should shout for joy. Amen? Amen? Our praise for our God should be heard. Amen? He tries and refines us for our abundance. Amen? Amen. Our God hears and answers the prayers of his people. Amen? Amen. In Hebrews 13, 15, it says, Through Christ, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. So here, and in Deuteronomy, we've been talking about these vow offerings. So we're going to close with a vow offering as a congregation. Our vow offering this morning is going to be in accordance with Psalm 66. Just like the psalmist, we're going to begin each of these lines with I will. I'm going to say this together. I will offer my best to the Lord. All right. A little more with gusto on this next one. I will present my life as a living sacrifice. Let's say it together. I will tell of what my God has done for my soul. I will cherish my God and not my sin. I will sing the glory of his name. I will give him glorious praise. Lord, this is the sacrifice of praise to you. We pray that you find it pleasing and acceptable in your sight. Amen.